Good morning. It is a privilege to be here with you, and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to um, stand before you and to share in the faith that we have together in our Lord Jesus. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 12. And my message today is on the subject of knowing and doing the will of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and verse 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's go briefly to the Lord in prayer. Father, we look to you for thy um, grace and thy help in this hour, that you would um, open this word to us by thy spirit, and Lord, give us um, understanding, and Lord, help us to feel the weightiness of your word, and Lord, help us in it to see the rights of our Lord and Savior over us, and Lord, that we would um, humbly recognize his rule in our life. And Lord, you'd make us um, both desirous to do thy will and understanding of what that, that will is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Saul of Tarsus was journeying to Damascus when he was confronted by the glory of Jesus Christ. And in one moment, he went from persecuting the church to submitting himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That encounter that, that Saul had was immediately followed by the question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that is the question that each of us asks when we come to see and recognize Jesus Christ. Um, a, a desire, an inward desire to submit ourselves to the kingship of Jesus over us, to do his will, to forsake our own. In fact, doing the will of God is one of the sure marks of true faith in Jesus Christ. So much so that our Lord and Savior in the Sermon on the Mount says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. There's a, a true recognition of his Lordship combined with a true doing of his will from the heart that is the result of true faith in Jesus Christ. But if we are honest in the, the culture in which we live, there is much confusion about God's will, how to know God's will. And there are books on the subject and um, especially in conversation with folks, you hear people um, saying how they know what God wants them to do, um, how they come about to discern God's leading in their lives. And, and, and what people say is, you, you can tell there's confusion. People get themselves into very difficult situations sometimes, and it's by following the will of God as they understand it. Um, sometimes people engage in questionable things. And yet they feel validated because they are doing the will of God. People go through um, things like um, 
um, fleeces, putting out fleeces or trying to follow open doors. Some people um, try to find hidden messages within the Bible that communicates to them what God wants for them. And maybe most commonly, people are led by what they feel is God's will. If they are going to go into some endeavor and they have a strong sense of security, of, of, of well-being in the situation, they determine, they deduce that this is God's will for them. And on the other hand, if they, if they have fears about something, something doesn't seem right, they, this must not be God's will. And, and so what we really have is just oftentimes just people's personalities are being played out. You know, you have confident people that rush into anything with the banner that they're doing God's will. And then certain personalities don't ever do anything because they're afraid of not doing God's will. And so we need clarity. It's not enough to have the desire to do God's will from the heart, a true, sincere desire, but we need clarity about what God's will is. And let me say one more thing. Some people just have given up altogether and, and, and have stopped worrying about truly wanting to do God's will. We want to reject all of those things. And instead, what we want to do is to know God's will and to do it. So my message today is really a compilation of several messages that I've been preaching back in Alabama about God's will. And I have, um, I've tried to compile them into one message, and we'll see how that goes. But before we get into our text, I need to say some introductory things to help us think about God's will. And firstly, whenever we talk about God's will, it's important for us to distinguish two categories. And these two categories aren't something that I've come up with, or even necessarily some theologian has come up with. It's, it's recognizing that Scripture itself speaks of God's will in two different ways. Now, different people have, have called them different things, but I'm calling them God's decreed will and God's prescribed will. I think those help communicate the categories. God's decreed will is simply what He has purposed or willed to take place. That's pretty simple, isn't it? God's prescribed will is that which he wants or has willed for us to do. And when we fail to make distinction between those two things, we get ourselves confused. For example, if I say God's will cannot be broken, well, if we're talking about God's decreed will, by and large, we'd all agree on that. Right. But if I am talking about God's prescribed will, well, that is broken every day. And even within Scripture, we see references to the will of God. Let me um, just briefly look at two texts, and you don't have to go there for the sake of time. But in Daniel, there are, there are several texts in Scripture, multiple texts that speak about God's decreed will. And one of them is in Daniel chapter 4, where the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the largest kingdom of that time, in a sense, the ruler of the world, because of his pride, was humbled down to the ground. And when he was restored again to his position of kingship, 
It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And here's the statement, And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Amen. The key truth in this passage about God's will is that God's will is a function of his kingship. Yes. In that nothing, as such, nothing can thwart that will. Mm-hmm. Nothing can stay God's hand or impede God from doing what he has purpose to do. Mm-hmm. It is the outworking of God's eternal decree. Mm-hmm. It is therefore unswerving. It cannot be thwarted. Another text, and there's many that we could go to, but I've picked these two texts because they teach two truths that God's will cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stay God's hand or say, what are you doing? But the other key text is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, the whole chapter of Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul is tracing the source of our salvation all the way back to God before the foundation of this world. And he says in verse chapter 1, verse 11, that we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Our salvation is part and parcel of the purpose of God. And this God is one who rules all things. And does all things after the counsel of his own will. Our salvation is in the hands of one who does all things after the counsel of his own will. So the key truth in this passage is that there's nothing that escapes the scope of God's will. There's no, um, there's no, there's no aspect of this universe that that is just free. No loose molecules per se in the kingdom of God. Everything is under God's plan and it is under his will. So I hope that this, what I'm saying, fits into your broader understanding of scripture that God's decreed will is unchanging, that nothing escapes it. It's eternal and all of those glorious truths. And scripture speaks of this as God's will. But scripture also speaks of God's prescribed will. And think of prescribed as in the way a doctor prescribes medication for you. God has prescribed what he wants us to do. And we find in scripture statements like this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We find the Apostle Paul multiple times in his prayers praying for the churches that they would have an understanding of God's will. That they would do God's will from the heart is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. We see Jesus telling the crowds in John chapter 6 when they ask, what is the will of God? What are the works of God that we should do them? And Jesus says, this is the will of God, that you should believe on him whom God has sent. So here, this is not an expression of something that God is doing, but rather an expression of what God has revealed for us to do. 
So as basic as it may seem, whenever we ask the question of God's will for our lives, we need to be thinking, am I thinking about God's decreed will or prescribed will? And obviously, we are talking in categories of God's prescribed will for us, which means that we are talking about what God has given to us in His Word. That's what prescribed means. It means that God has revealed it to us. Which means, as soon as we begin to think of God's will for our lives, we should be thinking in terms of what has God told me? Because we believe that God is still speaking today. Hebrews is a book that I love for its statements about how God is speaking to us. God in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. And the book of Hebrews is not directed to those who sat under Jesus' ministry. Right. But we have heard Christ through the apostolic word. It's what he goes on to say in chapter 2. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They bore witness of what he said, and we have now received from them that word. Hebrews goes on to say that if we hear the Spirit speaking today, harden not your heart. He goes on in Hebrews to say that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the bone and marrow. And there's this witness that the triune God is still speaking to us through His Word. So as soon as we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Our minds should immediately be going to what has God prescribed to me in His Word? And what is God speaking to me through it? Now, we're already way past what most people are talking about when they're talking about God's will. But these are the ways in which we ought to think. And these are foundational Christian thoughts for the Christian life. One key text. Again, I'm just trying to set up some of the framework to enter into our text. But in 2 Timothy, there's that statement about the Word of God that I'm sure you're all familiar with. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the way that verse is set up is that it's this way. All scripture that is given by inspiration from God is likewise profitable. It is inspired and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. That's its function in our lives. But what is its purpose, Paul says? That the man of God might be perfect and thoroughly equipped He says, for every good work. So the purpose of Scripture in that important text is to perfect us and to equip us for every good work. Now, what good work is not included in every good work? In what goal can we as Christians have higher than that of being made perfect? Yes. There is none, is there? Paul is saying that God's Word is not only inspired, but it is a sufficient text for us to be made into everything God wants us to be. And for us to do 
everything that God wants us to do. So God's prescribed will focuses in on God's word. And God's word is sufficient to make us who we ought to be and to equip us for everything that God wants us to do. Now, let me say one more thing about God's prescribed will before we get into our text. And that is this. I think we can distinguish God's prescribed will as that which is universal and also that which is unique. So, the Bible was written for me, but not just me. It was written for you and for the whole world. In all places. At all times. Which means that its message is not so specific to me that it cannot equally apply to everyone. So God's prescribed will is universal. Which is why we can take what it says and apply it to anyone that we meet. Which is why in this, this doctrine of dividing between God's prescribed will and, and decreed will is what allows us to tell people that it is God's will for you to believe on Christ. That's a universal command. God at one time winked at the rebellion of this earth, but now he commands all men everywhere. That's a universal command to repent and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The call to salvation is a universal call. And there are so many other aspects of what God commands us in His Word that are the same at all times, in all places. And God holds us accountable to obey them even though they were given to us years after it was originally revealed. We will not look at it today, but in Micah, um, the book where it talks about He has showed the old man what is good and what doth the Lord require thee, that was written hundreds of years after God had given His law to the people of Israel. And yet, the people of God complained, saying, how do we know what God wants from us? Does He want my firstborn? Does He want 10,000 of rams? And that's where God says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. Yes. And that same word comes to us. Here in 21st century, the Apostle Paul never envisioned what we are living in today exactly as we are living in it today. But yet, He has showed us what is good Amen. and what the Lord requires of us. Yes. So God's prescribed will is universal. But there's also a sense in which God's prescribed will is unique to us because it addresses us in our own unique settings as unique people. And here's where it starts becoming a little more difficult because the Bible does not give us explicit instructions for us uniquely. Though it recognizes that we are unique. And that really is where we begin to get into Romans chapter 12. Because Romans chapter 12, if we were to go on reading in this chapter, we see in verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So Paul is recognizing we're different. There are different measures of faith 
Or in this context, I think he's referring to the giftings that God has given to us. He says, we have many members in one body. All members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ. Going on verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And then he goes on to give us exhortations. So Paul recognizes that we are different. And in that sense, there is aspects of God's prescribed will that is unique. And the Bible does not explicitly give us unique instructions. It's not a GPS. And oftentimes we wish it was. So in our unique setting, that which is unique to us, we are obligated to, to with wisdom, discern God's will for us from the principles in this word. Mm -hmm. And when we are talking about God's will for our lives, oftentimes that's what we're thinking about. Is it God's will for me to get up and move across the country? Is it God's will for me to go to this church or that church? Is it God's will for me to get married at all? Who should I get married to? Those are all very important questions. But the point of today's message is this. If we are to be able to discern God's will in those matters, we must first be committed to God's universal will. God's prescribed will in its universal sense. If you look at our text in Romans chapter 12, you'll see that at the end of verse 2, there's a purpose statement. Everything that he says in verse 1 and 2 is aimed to this purpose. That ye may prove. And the word prove there has the idea of experience. It has the idea both of, of judging, of discerning, but also having discerned of approving. You notice in different translations, sometimes they vary there because it has both sense. It's not just discerning it, but actually approving the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So this is where we ought to be in regards to our own unique situation, discerning God's will for our lives. But if we are to be in that place, we must first give heed to what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. And so, and this is where it starts getting sticky for so many people because so many people want to have clear direction about who they should marry, where they should go, what job they should take. And yet they are living in rebellion to the universal will of God. And that's impossible. You're never going to be able to discern what God would have you do in those unique aspects of your life if you are not walking in obedience. And as we go through verses 1 and 2, you're going to notice that what Paul is describing is very much what we might call sanctification. Yes. Because sanctification is part of God's universal will for every man and woman and child. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. If you don't know anything else, you know this. God's will for me is that I be holy. Yes. And in what he is talking about in verse 1 and 2 is the path of holiness. As we walk down the path of holiness, Paul says, you'll be able to discern those more unique aspects right. of your life. So let's dive into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 
and two. In our text, there are three things that I want to bring out. The first is the Christian's gospel motivation. The second is the Christian's consecrated life. And the third is the Christian's transformed life. So let's begin by looking at the Christian's gospel motivation. Romans chapter 12 is really a hinge point that divides the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of the book, the Apostle Paul has been expounding the doctrines of the gospel. And as Paul does in so many of his books, he comes to a point where he changes gears. He is still talking about the gospel. But now he begins to tell us the applications that come from that gospel. Oftentimes you'll hear this referred to as the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives refer to what is true about us in Christ. What God has done for us through Christ. And the imperatives are that responsibility that is upon us that flow out of those truths. And we see that in the first phrase of this verse. I beseech you, therefore... Brethren, building not just upon the immediate verses before, but building upon the first half of the book. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by what you have received in the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul, in the last few verses of chapter 11, has illustrated for us what kind of response we ought to have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How ought we to respond to the gospel? Well, Paul illustrates it for us. Oh, the depth of the riches, verse 33, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is really similar to what we were listening to yesterday at the conference on Solidero Gloria. But our response to what God has done for us should be immediately a response of praise back to God. Yes. What, Paul tell, what Paul is doing here, he, he's modeling for us a response. This is not just Paul, Paul's response, but how, how we ought to respond to the gospel. And really, it's a marked contrast to what was said about us in Romans chapter 1. Paul's first accusation against the pagan world is that when they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were thankful. You and I, in our lostness, we looked around at the created world. We saw such a witness of God's creative power, and we saw nothing. We were blinded. We were hardened to God's creative power. We refuse to glorify. We refuse to give thanks. Well, here at the end of what the gospel has done for us, we see this transformation. This is the power of the gospel. The, the gospel takes unglorifying sinners, unthankful sinners, and transforms them into people like this who now worship God not just for his creative power, but also for what he has done for us in Christ. It's interesting if we were to study these verses to see the language of this comes from two Old Testament passages. The first Old Testament passage, 
verse um, um, verse 35 comes from the book of Job, where God is confronting Job and challenging Job about where was you, where were you when I was creating the world? And that's where the question is asked, who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? God's question to Job is, where were you when I created all things? And it's a challenge to Job to recognize God's creative power. But the language of verse 34 comes from Isaiah 40, where Israel is praising God for the good tidings that has come to Zion of deliverance. Where God is compared, where God is shown to be incomparable to all the other gods. And that's where the language of who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor. This context of both God's creation and of God's redemption is at work here in this doxology. Paul is saying not only do we now recognize God as a creator, but now we worship him as our redeemer, as our savior. We join the throngs in the book of Revelation singing an old song. You are worthy because you created all things and by your power they exist. And they are. But now we likewise join in that new song and sing, you are worthy because you were slain. Yes. And you have redeemed us to thyself through Jesus Christ. And so, it is the outworking. The, the whole practical aspects of the Christian life are the outworking both of what God has done for us in the gospel and of our response of praise back to God. It's the mercies of God that are now motivating us to live a life for God. Amen. So we recognize that our motivation is gospel-rooted because what of God has done for us. But then we go on and we look at the Christian's consecrated life. Look at the next phrase in our text. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God wants us to serve Him. We know that, right? This is, I'm involved in Christian service. We, we talk about serving God. But sometimes we forget that God wants us to serve Him. And in Scripture, as I'm studying this subject of Christian service, it's almost shocking how much God desires our service to Him. We, we delight ourselves that God needs nothing. And yet He wants us to serve Him. Amen. This Greek word here is used, its equivalent is used in the Old Testament in a very extraordinary way. We find this word in the Old Testament the very first time in the creation account. And it pops up in an extraordinary way because in Genesis chapter 2, there's this summary description of God's creative power. He made this, he made that, he did all of these different things. And in the middle of those statements, there's this word. But there was no man to till the ground. God just made everything. From nothing. 
by the word of his power. And Genesis is highlighting that. And then there's this little like, this little statement that says, there's no man to till the ground. Does God need a man to till the ground? The text would almost suggest that he did. We know God doesn't. But God wants a man to till the ground. And that, right. that word till is the first time we find the word serve, to work. It's mm, good. So God makes a man. And he's tasked with laboring in the Garden of Eden. And we could say that God's purpose in creating an Adam and Eve was to serve him. In a context of paradise, in obedience to God's command. But then comes the fall. And we see that word used again in the curse that comes on Adam. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread and you will, and the word is translated as um, till. You will till the ground from which you were brought. Man was created to serve God because of the fall. He's tilling. He's serving the ground from which he was brought out. We go on in the Old Testament, we find Genesis chapter 15 where God tells Abraham that your descendants will serve a foreign people in a foreign land. The same word is used again. We find the fulfillment of that in the opening chapters of Exodus. The privileged status that God's people enjoyed in Egypt was lost because of this this suspicious king that came up. He was suspicious of their prosperity. And as a solution to that, he put them all into bondage. And that same word is used again of the bondage that God's people experienced in the land of Canaan. They're now slaves. They're still serving, but now they're serving the Egyptians. And that slavery is no longer in paradise. It's a slavery to man. And where we really begin to see this word used is when God throws down the gauntlet to Pharaoh and challenges the gods of Egypt. Because what is God's purpose in redeeming his people out of Egypt. He says, let my people go that they may serve me. His whole point in redeeming them out of the, the land of Egypt was so that he might have a people to serve him. And time and time again throughout that whole conflict, there's that challenge between Pharaoh and the challenge between God. You know how Pharaoh responded the first time to God's challenge? He made them serve with more rigor. And God's word comes again and again. Let them go that they may serve me. So God redeems his people out of Egypt. And he takes them all the way to uh, Mount Sinai. And he gives them his law. And there for the first time we see this word used in a more spiritual sense. Because on the, on the, um, on the mount in the giving of God's law. He says, I am the Lord thy God. Which hath brought thee out of the house of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. And he says... You shall not have any other gods before me. He says, you shall not bow down thyself to them, nor shall you serve them. You see, God's people suffer not just from slavery in Egypt, but there's a deeper kind of service that enslaves God's people. And it's spiritual. Not just slaves to men, but slaves to lesser gods. And God's purpose is not just to redeem us from slavery to man, but to redeem us from all idols. 
so that we might serve Him. In God's servant, God's worship in the tabernacle is called the service of the Lord. And that same conflict goes through the book of Deuteronomy where God is challenging His people to not turn away from Him and serve other gods. We come to the book of Joshua. You all know this passage. Joshua says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, Jesus Christ, in His temptation, was tempted to serve Satan. The temptation came and said, Bow down to me, and I will give you all the nations. And what did Jesus do? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the power of the gospel is on display in the book of Romans. God is not just taking ungrateful, unglorifying sinners and turning them into glorifying and thankful saints. But He is also taking those who serve In Paul's own words in Romans chapter 1, they worshipped and they served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And Paul accuses us of that. And here, as we begin to go to this hinge point in the book of Romans, we've been redeemed. We are are the same people as those in Romans 1. But we are not the same people because we've been redeemed. And as redeemed humanity... We are now being called on, like the people of Israel brought out of Egypt, we are being called on to serve the Lord. Well, how do we serve the Lord? Paul tells us, God still wants our service. And that service looks like a consecrated life. That's what he says. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The the service that God wants from us is a consecrated life. And the Apostle Paul paints that life with the imagery of sacrifice. Now, we've never, probably none of us have witnessed an actual sacrifice. But it was a bloody, gruesome thing. And Paul's audience would have seen it, undoubtedly. In the Old Testament, that saturates the, the, the culture of the New Testament. They knew what a sacrifice was. It was a bloody butchering of an animal. It was a quartering of it. It was a gutting of it, a skinning of it, a burning of it, of the animal. It's a gruesome picture of consecration to God. And that's what Paul says we should be thinking of when we think of ourselves in relationship to God. Our sacrifice to God is not one of atonement. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul has already talked about sacrifice. Christ was made a propitiation for us in Romans chapter 3. That wrath-bearing sacrifice. We now have peace with God through His propitiation on our behalf. In Romans chapter 8, Christ was delivered up For us all, that language of sacrifice offered up for us. We are not talking here of us offering ourselves as an atonement to God. Right. But rather we are offering ourselves in gratitude. Yes. Back to God. 
consecrating ourselves to Him. The command that Paul gives us here in this verse is coming to us about us. Look what he says. That ye present your bodies. Who's he addressing? Well, he addresses our wills. Us. Our renewed wills. The will that has acknowledged God in his day of power, right? Your people will be willing in the day of your power. Us in our redeemed state. Our wills. He is addressing us to take our bodies and present it to God. Now sometimes when we think of the Christian life, we think of something less than our bodies. The New Testament is so full of focus on the internal. We think that what Paul is saying is take your spiritual self and offer that spiritual self up to God. But that's not what Paul says at all. He calls on us our wills, our spiritual self, you might say. And he says, take your bodies and offer that up to God. Now, that's very significant in Paul's day. Because in Paul's day, there was that Greek thinking that that which was fleshly was lesser. In a way, that which was fleshly was too corrupted to really be able to please God. If we're going to please God, it's going to have to be in our spiritual realm. And Paul says that's not what God wants. One commentator that I read made the observation. I'm way ahead in my notes. One commentator said that we see the same sort of attitude in our culture today. He says that, let me try to find it here so I can read it to you. He says this, the excuse is offered for someone who has sinned in his body, but his heart is in the right place. How many times have we thought that way? We think that that's ancient Greek thought, right? It's still common to us. As long as your heart is in the right place, what you do, the deeds done in the body are lesser, less important. Paul says that's not the case. Think with me about how we served the creature more than the creator. Did we serve the creature with our hearts? Yes. With our minds? Yes. But as Paul addresses us about our service to the creature more than the creator, he points specifically at the sinful acts of the body. He says that when we worship and serve the creature more than the creator, we will give it over to sinful acts of immorality. Later on in Romans chapter 3, when Paul summarizes man's depravity, he doesn't, he could have just said man at his heart is totally corrupt. But he says this, that his throat is corrupt. Right. Your problem isn't just that your heart's corrupt. It's that your heart has manifested its corruptness through a corrupt throat. Your tongue, your lips, your mouth, your feet, your eyes. 
That's how we have served the flesh. And now all of that that was corrupted by sin, Paul is saying, all of that that was in the service to the flesh, to the creature, all of that is now being called on. That's good. To serve the Lord. And that is the same thing that Paul has said throughout the book. He says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness, your members, but yield yourselves unto God. As those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans chapter 10, with the heart, man believes. But what happens next? With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Which ye have of God and ye are not your own? We must guard from that worldly way of thinking that thinks that we can engage in things with our bodily members in a way that isn't associated with our will and with our heart, who we are spiritually. Paul says, he addresses us about ourselves. You take your body and offer yourself up to God as a living sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices were consecrated to God in that they were brought and in one act they were killed. And you could never get the animal back. It was a picture of total consecration to God. But in the New Covenant, the sacrifice that God wants from us is similar and different. It is to be totally consecrated to God but by living not by God. He wants a living sacrifice. Yes. And in many ways, He is calling us to do which is much, that which is much harder. Because in, in many circumstances, it'd be easier just to die than to have to go on living in a way that is committed and consecrated to God. I have a friend who grew up in Russia. And he says that Russian Christians, instead of Russian Christians, that they knew how to die for Christ. They just didn't know how to live for Him. What God wants from you, brother and sister, is a life of consecration. Paul calls this a reasonable service. Now, there's some questions as to how to translate that word reasonable. But I think some translations differ. But I think the word reasonable communicates or rational. That's another way we could say what Paul is saying. The Christian's consecrated service to God, his life consecrated to God, is not something that happens automatically. Right. You see, throughout history, there have been groups that thought that by doing something, they could get into this consecrated, they could. One act of consecration, they'd be totally consecrated forever. Just be natural, right? But it's not that way. The, the Catholics found out that you can put somebody in a monastery or in a convent. You can make them take vows of, of, of um, chastity or of poverty. You can isolate people from the world. 
But that does not make them consecrated to God. We need a consecration that is something that is done repeatedly. It's a consciousness. That's what he's talking about. We have to be consciously consecrating ourselves to God. In all of life, we wake up in the morning and we are consciously living to God. We are consciously working to God. That's why we pray before we eat and we ask the Lord's help to consciously eat this meal to God. It's why we are always engaging in thanksgiving because we are recognizing all things from God and all things to God. But it's not something that happens on autopilot. It is the Christian's rational service that God wants. This commitment to God. This ongoing commitment to God. Listen to this comment from John Murray. He says, Worshipful service is rational in contrast to what is mechanical and automatic. A great many of our bodily functions do not enlist volition. The word volition has to do with will. A great many of our bodily functions do not enlist volition on our part. But the worshipful service here enjoined must constrain intelligent volition. It's not like your heart. What does your heart do? It just beats whether you want it to or not. It just does what it does. Your lungs work without you even being conscious of them. But the kind of service God wants is not like our heart just beating. He wants conscious, intelligent consecration to Him. The lesson to be derived from the term rational is that we are not spiritual in the biblical sense, except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. So Paul says, on the basis of what God has done for you in the gospel, on the basis of responding in doxology to God, that we are now to live out our lives in conscious consecration to God, in the form, in the picture, and in the the idea of sacrifice. Now we come to the second verse. And Paul, in the second verse, is talking about a transformed life. Life. And in this, we see two things. Paul calls us to a life of non-conformity. And then he calls us to a life of transformation. Paul says in the text, Be not conformed to this world. We stand in this passage as a new creation, a new people of God, a redeemed people. We have a new relationship with God. What does that mean for our relationship with the world? And Paul says, don't be conformed to it. Yes. Now what Paul says here about the world fits into what the scriptures more broadly tell us about the world in its relationship to God. The word Paul uses here is the word age. It's literally the word age. And it speaks of this age in contrast to the age to come. It's in essence bracketing this entire world in parentheses of time. This, this age is passing and it will not always be. It's a, it's a present age and then there's a future age. 
And Paul says, don't live your life conformed to this present age. Why? Because we are already citizens of that future age. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke about the generation, the children of this age. Those around us, they are citizens of this little bracketed time period. And Jesus says, but you are the children of light. Our citizenship has already been inaugurated for the age to come. We must not live in this world as citizens of it. This world is something that we have been saved from. Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, we walked in our time past according to the, the, um, of this age. What's the word? The, the Ephesians chapter 2. My mind's going blank on what it says. According to the course of this world. And he has saved us out of that. Why? Look what he says later on in the same chapter. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. We've been delivered from this age in view of the age to come. Scripture speaks of a God of this age who is actively blinding the eyes of men in this world lest they see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. But we've been delivered from that. You'd think if this age is evil, if Christ has been given to deliver us from this age, if we have escaped the clutches of the God of this age, why are we still worried about this age? Why are we being warned? Well, there's danger in this age for the believer, for the Christian. We've been saved out of it. We're opposed to it. It's opposed to God. But yet there's space, this constant danger of conforming, of building alliances with this world, of believing its ideals, of being assimilated into its culture. And we could go through the Old Testament and see so many pictures of how God brought Israel out of Egypt and was isolating them in a way that is a picture for us today of being a separate people from all the other nations. And Israel's constant sin was in being assimilated back into the nations around them. And judgment fell on them time and time again for it. And that, in our day, is a picture of how God is, wants us to be living separated lives from the world around us. We face, as one writer said, a floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations that at any time are current in this world. And it may be impossible to seize and accurately define this world, but it constitutes a most real and effective power. Being the moral or immoral atmosphere, which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again inevitably to exhale. We're breathing it in every day. Are you being conformed to it? Are you being infected by it? And scripture is full of warnings 
that we must take seriously about that danger. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about seed that fell in thorny ground. And he says, this is seed that falls amongst thorny ground. And it says, the cares of this world. That's horrible. It's the anxiety. It's the stress. It's the, the, the rat race of this world chokes it out. But that's not what Jesus said entirely. He said also, the allure of riches. You can be worldly in your stressed outness about what am I going to eat? and What am I going to drink? And what clothes should I, be, what I, should I wear? You can be worldly by buying into the stress and narrowing your eyesight by the present things. But you can also be worldly by buying into its aspirations. And the, the lure of riches. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 7. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. You will either love one and hate the other or serve the other and hate the other. You can't. They are incompatible. And in the parable of the sower, he says, lust of other things. Money Anxiety, lust of things, lust for things. It consumes many who receive the word. And Jesus says it chokes it out. And it never bears fruit. And that warning comes to us because the Bible makes it very clear that to be choked out by those things is to embrace the world, to go back to it. The Apostle Paul says something very sad about Demas, he says he went back, he said, having loved this present age. That's a scary thing to be said. And yet that is true about so many. They went back because they loved this age. Mm. Let me read to you some words from J.C. Ryle. He says, worldliness is one of the greatest dangers that beset man's soul. It is no wonder that we find our Lord speaking strongly about it. It is an insidious, specious, plausible enemy. I think plausible means it looks half nice. It seems so innocent to to pay close attention to our business. It seems so harmless to seek our happiness in this world so long as we keep clear of open sins. Yet here is a rock on which many make shipwreck to all eternity. They lay up treasure on earth and forget to lay up treasure in heaven. May we all remember this. Where are our hearts? What do we love best? Are our chiefest affections on things in earth or things in heaven? Life or death depends on the answer we can give to these questions. If our treasure is earthly, our hearts will be earthly also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Let us learn from our Lord's caution about worldliness what immense need we all have to watch and pray against an earthly spirit. What are the vast majority of professing Christians around us doing? They are laying up treasure on earth. There can be no mistake about it. Their tastes, their ways, their habits tell a fearful tale. They are not laying up treasure in heaven. Mm. Oh, let us, be all, let us all beware that we do not sink into hell by paying excessive attention 
to lawful things. Open transgression of God's law slays its thousands, but wilderness its tens of thousands. We must recognize our citizenship is not in this age. The words of Jesus Christ in his prayer on John 17, we have been given to Christ out of the world. We are in the world. We are hated by the world. We are not of the world. We are not to be taken out of the world, but kept from its evil. And we are sent into the world to witness to it as our master did, that the world may know who and what he is. When Paul says, be not conformed to this world, that's the kind of world he's talking about. And he's warning us against its dangers. But it's not enough to just have a call to nonconformity. There must be a turning from something right. and a turning to something. Right. You can't just be separated from the world. Right. You must be separated by what Paul says, by transformation. So he gives us a call to transformation. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word Paul uses here is extraordinary. He says that the word in Greek is metamorpho. Be ye transformed. Be ye metamorpho. And you can't say that without thinking of an English word. Metamorphosis. This word is very unique in the New Testament. It appears, I think, here in one other place in the epistles. But elsewhere it is only used to describe our Lord and Savior of the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ was metamorphosized in front of them. What is metamorphosis? It's a radical transformation. Metamorphosis, the way we use it, is a biological process by which an animal physically develops involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change in the animal's body structure. It's a definition from the internet about what a morphosis is. But do you hear that? It's a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change. What animal do we think of when we think of metamorphosis? You, get, you kids probably even know what I'm talking about. There's an animal that is transformed. So we think of a puppy dog, it's born and it's little. But in a lot of ways, it still looks like a puppy dog. And that puppy dog grows and grows and grows. And we can say that it changes a lot, but it really doesn't change a lot. It's just a bigger puppy dog, right? But there's an animal called a butterfly, and there's other animals as well. But the butterfly is born as a little egg, turns into a caterpillar, and then the metamorphosis happens. It becomes a butterfly. It's radical. The words in our text, be not conformed, but be ye transformed, are two totally different words. The word conform has to do with adapting ourselves to something. In this case, it's the world. We are pulled and stretched into conforming to its pattern. But to be transformed is something totally different than that. Imagine taking a caterpillar and trying to conform it into a butterfly. Stretch it and pull it and make it become a butterfly. Do you think you could do it? 
hammer out little wings, try to carve out the little antenna. It's impossible, isn't it? It's a totally different thing. Yet that's what God has called on us to do as a means of not being conformed. You know what this means for the believer? It means that sanctification means radical change. If you are a Christian, you have just bought into a new life that means radical change for you. If you are not willing to embrace change, then don't be a Christian. It means that your personality is going to have to change. What is my one's personality? It's really the sum total of our of, of what's unique about us, right? Our our, our habits, our 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 sense of, of how we we relate to others, our our characteristics. Personality is kind of complex. How much of our personality has been tainted by sin? Well, that much of it has got to be transformed, which means you've got to change. And the old saying, old dogs can't learn new tricks, is not in the Bible. And it's not a Christian statement. Because we must all be changed. And there is an ongoing change that will be culminating in the resurrection. But we must be embracing a life of change now. Being transformed. Now, what is the goal of our transformation? Well, if we want to look at something in the text that would tell us, I think we'd have to go back to Romans chapter 8, where Paul uses, our English uses the word conformed. And it has nothing to do in the Greek with the first use of conformed in our text. It actually is more related. It's the same root as transformed. And it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those who are called according to God's purpose, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed. And the word there is sum morphos. Together, it means to be shaped into the likeness of another. Transformed into the likeness of another. God's purpose for us is that we be conformed, transformed into the likeness of his son. Amen. All of us have the same ideal. The person of Jesus Christ. The same ideal expressed all the way through the Old Testament. That God wants us as his children, as his image bearers, to bear the family resemblance. And when we think of God-likeness, in the Old Testament, the command comes, Be ye holy as I am holy. What does it mean to be holy like God is holy? Well, Christ has come and has demonstrated in His own uniqueness, in His own time and place, with His own humanity, what it means to be holy as God is holy. And when we think of God-likeness, godliness, the aspiration of who we ought to be, we can think of nothing higher than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He embodied the character of God in human form, combined with human weakness. Be ye transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the goal of our transformation, what is the means of our transformation? And Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. In our regeneration, this word is used elsewhere about God's work in transforming us at our conversion. 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, we have experienced conversion. But there's an ongoing renewal of our mind. And the Bible makes it clear that as our minds are being reshaped through new inputs, Brother Ken was talking about the means of grace, but as our minds are being reshaped by the Word of God, it is natural that our behavior and our whole selves be transformed. Yes. Because who we are after the flesh, in many ways, is the function of how we think. Which is why the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are, and here's that other way, the other place where that word is used, are transformed. We are metamorphosized into the same image. How does this nonconformity happen? How does this transformation take place? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, all of this, this life of, this life enabled, motivated by the gospel, by the mercies of God, this life of consecration to God, of, of service to God, this life of nonconformity, of transformation, our minds being renewed so that we can think with new thought patterns and in new ways, with new responses. Paul says, if you do all of that, he says, all of this is so that you may prove, right. discern, and know the will of God in your life. So the next time you hear someone saying, I just want to know God's will, say, I can show you how to do that. And it starts with the gospel. Mm -hmm. God transforming us, making us a redeemed people, making us new creatures, bringing us into his service, transforming our minds so that we in turn can know what God wants for us in our lives. So I hope this has been a helpful introduction to the, the, the topic of God's will for us. And I trust that we will all have a renewed commitment to the road of sanctification, the path of holiness, and that it would be motivated not by self, but by the mercies of God. Amen that your path of holiness would be motivated by the doxology, that you would revel in the unknownness of God. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? See, the greatness of God is such that he's unknown to us. His goodness is such that we delight in that unknownness. Amen. It's not an unknownness that causes fear in us. We've tasted and seen the goodness of God, which allows us to know that the rest of God that we don't know is good. Amen. And that enables us to walk. God bless you. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless His word to our hearts.